I'll pray and then we'll look at uh, this text together. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us now as we come to your word. Uh, Father, the topic of divorce and separation is a difficult one. And so I pray that you would help us uh, by your spirit now as we, we give our minds to thinking about what you say to that topic. Uh, Father, I pray that you give me grace to preach uh, this word faithfully, uh, grace for all of us to listen carefully, and I pray that as we listen to this and apply it to our lives, uh, Jesus would be glorified in his name. Amen. Uh, I suspect most of us have some experience with divorce. Uh, many of you will have friends or family who have gone through a divorce. Some of you will have gone through it personally. And still others of you might actually be fearful of the prospect that that could actually happen to you in your marriage in the future. Most of us have some experience with divorce because it's quite common in Australia. Around one in three Aussie marriages end in divorce. Uh, it's common, but from my observation, it's never easy or pleasant. Uh, it may be necessary in some instances, as we'll hear, but it's never pleasant or easy. Last week, we thought about the idea of marriage as a one-flesh relationship, where two become one. And when a marriage ends, it's kind of like ripping apart two pieces of paper that have been glued together. Both pieces are often damaged in the process, one sometimes worse than the other. A one testimony I was reading this week from a Christian lady whose husband had left her marriage, and she just described her experience as being plunged into hell. And then went on to say later in uh, that article that divorce leaves half of your body on the other side of a closed door. In my second year at uni, I lived with a guy who had just that previous year been through a painful divorce, and he described it in similar terms, like losing a body part, he said. I remember the many times he would simply just break down and start weeping in our home. Uh, divorce is a difficult topic for many of us to think about, but it can also be a confusing topic for Christians to think about. We have questions like, is it even allowed? Uh, when is it allowed? If so, uh, what if my spouse leaves me? Uh, what if I feel like there is no other option here? See, the topic of divorce can be difficult and sometimes confusing. So like the church in Corinth, we need to listen to what God's word has to say about divorce so that we will know best how to honour Jesus in the mess and complexity of marriage. So what we'll do is think about the context and God's general principle that marriage is for life, and then we'll spend some time thinking about a particular issue that was present in the Corinthian church and still exists today, where Christians are married or find themselves in a marriage with a person who's not a Christian, as Paul describes them, unbelievers in this passage. So let's think about first the context that we have for this passage. Uh, Paul's words about divorce here form part of the matters that the Corinthians wrote about. We saw that back in verse 1 of this chapter. But the question is, why would the Corinthians be so interested in the topic of divorce? Uh, we're not 
told explicitly, but I think there are a few reasons that we can gather from this chapter and kind of just the historical context that we're in here. You see, the first reason that divorce may have been on their minds was because it was just so common in the Roman Empire. In the Roman world, wives, along with their husbands, were legally allowed to divorce each other. Much like today, divorce was accessible to most free people uh, who wanted one. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for people to have multiple divorces. And so to insist on marriage as a lifelong commitment, as we'll see Jesus taught his people, well, that was to kind of go against the grain of what was accepted in Roman culture. It's that whole, well, if everyone else is doing it, why can't we kind of idea. Uh, But another reason may have been that uh, the Corinthians simply had an incorrect theology or view of marriage. Uh, We know from the previous passage that we looked at last week uh, that um, sex, for some in the church, had a very negative connotation. And it's possible that even the marriage union was something that was being cast in negative terms, something worldly, something that the truly spiritual would perhaps want to get rid of in their life. But the third reason, which I actually think is most on Paul's mind when he writes these words, is that there was a general perhaps unease of many uh, married people with their spiritually mixed marriages. Uh, See, the Corinthians were first-generation believers who had been converted mostly from pagan idolatry. And because of this, many of them still had husbands or wives who were thoroughly pagan, worshipping idols. So not only did this create an entirely new complexity in their marriages, as we'll discuss, in some it produced a sense of fear that they were somehow compromising their own holiness by remaining to their spouses. Was divorce the right option in such matters of spiritual purity? Or wasn't it? Uh, What if the unbelieving spouse couldn't stand the new believer's faith and just simply left them? What then? Are we still bound to the marriage, Paul, or aren't we? And it's helpful for us to know this context because it reminds us that the Corinthian believers were actually real people with real anxieties who were really trying to grapple with this question of divorce. Uh, These people weren't simply trying to figure out how to think theologically about marriage and divorce as though it was some question on a Bible college essay. They were trying to figure out how to live their lives Christianly in a society where divorce was common, where in a church where the theology on the subject was perhaps a bit confused, and in their home for which many it contained real unease and complexity. See, like the Corinthians, many of you will be thinking of the topic of divorce with real-life experience in mind, maybe of a friend, maybe of parents, maybe of yourself. Uh, This topic is not something to treat kind of clinically, but pastorally. And that's what Paul does here, I think, in these verses. He comes kind of as a loving pastor to these believers and actually helps them and helps us to think Christianly about divorce. So what does he say to them? Well, he begins by reiterating the teaching of Jesus who said marriage is lifelong. Uh, But then he addresses their specific big issue of what to do 
uh, when you were married to someone who isn't a Christian. So the first thing Paul reminds the Corinthians is that marriage is for life. Uh, This is the big principle he starts on. Christian marriage is an exclusive, lifelong union between a husband and a wife. So you look at the way Paul reminds his readers of the Lord's teaching prior, uh, Lord's teaching on this matter in verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, as we'll see, Jesus and Paul both speak to extreme and kind of devastating circumstances in which divorce is permitted, but the overarching message of Jesus is that people, his people should not divorce but keep their marriage covenant. And Paul's serious about this, isn't he? So much so that he tells those who have kind of already separated, presumably without sufficient grounds, to remain unmarried or be reconciled. Now, in a society where divorce was both uh, prevalent and acceptable, the idea of exclusive, lifelong marriage, well, that would have been pretty extreme. And many in our world today can actually kind of think it's extreme too. I remember some years ago speaking with a friend uh, who isn't a Christian. Uh, She popped over to our house and she was interested in the preparation that I'd been doing on a wedding sermon. Uh, We got chatting about the Christian understanding of marriage and how Jesus speaks of it as a lifelong commitment. And I remember her saying, oh, look, I, I don't know. Is it really reasonable to expect two people to stay in a monogamous relationship for decades, maybe when the life expectancy was around 30? But not today, surely. And look, you can kind of understand where she's coming from, right? People change over time. Circumstances change. Romance cools. Frustrations creep in. But what I tried to kind of imperfectly explain to her was that the Christian commitment of marriage is actually supposed to be a reflection of the greater commitment and the greater love that Jesus has for his people. The commitment that saw him enter into our world, die for sins, and rise again to establish a restored and everlasting relationship between God and sinners. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christian marriage is about lifelong serious commitment because, well, that's what Christ showed to us. But it's also because that's how God designed it to be from the beginning of creation. That's what we heard Jesus say in our first Bible reading tonight, Matthew 19 when the religious leaders of his day questioned why the law of Moses commanded uh, people to get a divorce in certain circumstances, well, Jesus explained that it was because of the hardness of the human heart, that God allowed divorce, not commanded it. But it was not that way from the beginning, says Jesus. And our goal should be to live out that original and good design of lifelong marriage. But Jesus does list one exception in which the marriage covenant becomes so destroyed, 
so devastated that divorce is permitted. And that exception, he says, is the betrayal of sexual immorality. Now, Paul will also provide another devastating basis for divorce in a moment where it can become permitted. Uh, But we'll think about that later. But our hearts are hard, says Jesus. Our world is sinful. There will be moments where married people so terribly break the marriage covenant that divorce is permissible. But that being said, we are not to lose sight of the overarching principle here of Jesus, that marriage is for life. And you see, we need to hear this because often our culture tells us that our happiness, our fulfillment is above all things. And so if your marriage isn't making you happy anymore or if you don't find it fulfilling, well, maybe it's time to think twice about staying in it. In fact, research has shown that the main reasons marriages end in Australia isn't actually because of adultery or abandonment. It's because of communication and and compatibility issues. See, we are called to love in a committed way like Jesus, against the prevailing attitudes or practices of our culture. So how do we actually do that, though? How do we cultivate longevity in our marriages? Well, maybe for you married folk, it means actually carving out a regular date night to talk. I'm saying this to myself as well. Maybe it means having a specific prayer time with your spouse. Maybe it means you think about marriage counselling if there are actual real issues in your marriage that are getting too much. Maybe it means speaking with a mature Christian or a pastor to help you work through things, seek some advice. Maybe you even want to do some of the marriage exercises from the preparing rich material that a couple of us are leaders use with couples here. But if you are struggling in your marriage, please come and talk to one of the pastors because we want to help you honour Jesus by faithfully living out your marriage commitment to one another. But Paul's words, or Jesus' words, are also a reminder to those of us who are unmarried. Marriage is for life. You need to hear that too. The Christians do not think of divorce like an insurance policy that we can pull out whenever we want out of a marriage. So that means for those of you who are unmarried, choose carefully who you enter into marriage with. You need to think, am I prepared to spend the rest of my life with this person? Now, I know I can't know them at every level, but have I seen enough evidence of their Christian conviction, their love of Jesus? Have I seen or heard of evidence in their life of kindness? Patience, generosity, service. So you're being asked when you get married to do the rest of your life with that person. And that is huge. Now, God gives us grace for that commitment, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't think seriously about the who of marriage. So Paul lays down some uh, the general principle when it comes to the topic of divorce that Christian marriage is lifelong. 
But in verses 12 and following, Paul kind of moves his focus to address this specific pastoral concern of a number of married people in the congregation. A number of them were married to unbelievers, people who were still immersed in their pagan idolatry. Now again, remember, many of the Christians in Corinth would have already been in those pagan marriages before they became Christian. And so it's important that we appreciate the real pastoral issue that's going on for many in the church that Paul writes to. And I see sort of three big possible complexities uh, that would have been felt in the church and maybe that we can feel too sometimes in our marriages uh, of um, in marriages that are mixed spiritually. So the first complexity involved worship. Imagine coming home to your spouse and then telling them that you actually now reject all the local gods and have chosen instead to worship a crucified saviour who claims to have died for your sins. Imagine how that one goes down at the kitchen table. Spouse saying to you, are you kind of crazy? What is going on here? I mean, you're not going to worship any of our gods. Do you want to invite disaster on our family? There are many Christians today who can actually resonate with that major issue, particularly those who have become Christian from another culture, another religious background, and we have those people in our community who have gone through that pain. Worship of Jesus is eternally worth it, but can be a huge point of complexity in some marriages. But the second complexity involves values. Christian uh, Corinthian society was comfortable with um, comfortable and accepting of many values that kind of butted heads with Jesus' way of living. For example, Corinthian society was comfortable with a level of promiscuous sexual activity, yet Jesus taught self-control. Corinthian society valued pride and power. Jesus taught humility and service of others, as we saw in his own life, dying on a cross. And this actually is a real point for Christians today. Not, now, not every believer who is married to an unbeliever will feel this in a major way, but some will. Uh, one sister in Christ who comes to our church gave me permission to share this, so that when she became a Christian, in her married years, her husband told her with a level of grief that she just was not the person he had married. You see, sometimes Jesus' way of life will be compelling. Other times it will be a source of grief and frustration. But the third complexity involves practices. The believing husband or wife now had church meetings they might go to. Perhaps they now prayed in the family home. Maybe some of them may have even read scriptures in the family home. And all these things would have been just so different for their spouse to see. They would have taken up new time, new energy. And again, this can be a point of complexity for a believing spouse today in similar circumstances. My husband and I always visited his parents on Sunday mornings. What should I do? My wife doesn't like how much time my new faith is taking up. How should I respond? See, for believers married to unbelievers in Corinth, life was complex. But there was also anxiety. 
Uh, Some, it would seem, were anxious that their marriage union to an unbeliever and an idol worshipper would somehow spiritually compromise them. Almost as though through some kind of spiritual osmosis, they would become infected spiritually. And you can see the anxiety, uh, that anxiety in other religions today, uh, where ceremonial washing is still required after you associate with someone who might not be a part of your faith. But, but put yourself in the shoes of one of these Corinthian believers. Imagine how you might respond to that kind of complexity, that kind of anxiety. Now, was the solution to this complexity and this fear for spiritual purity, was the solution to simply opt out of the marriage? Well, Paul gives two reasons or responses that emphasize the commitment of marriage but also the painful reality of spousal abandonment. And the two things he says is this, if they will live with you, they're willing, do not divorce them. But if they leave, you are not bound. So let's think about that first one. Do not divorce if there is willingness. Uh, For those who uh, who are married to unbelievers, says Paul, Don't divorce your spouse if they're actually willing to live with you. And you see that in verse 12 of your Bibles. I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now, I just want to point out that when it says, I, not the Lord, Paul is not suggesting that somehow we should take his words with kind of less spiritual authority than Jesus' words. Remember, Paul is an apostle of Jesus. He speaks with Jesus' authority. Uh, What he's saying is that unlike the previous comments back in verses 10 and 11, he's no longer quoting Jesus directly. Uh, Jesus was never confronted with this particular concern during his earthly ministry, and so Paul is making clear that he's now dealing with a different issue that requires a further word. So Paul is saying in verses 12 and 13 that where the unbelieving spouse is willing to live with the believing spouse, Christians must not divorce. Uh, In many circumstances, people who aren't Christian will actually be totally fine to continue on in the marriage despite the occasional complexities that that has. And many of you will know instances where this is the case. Maybe you're even in that situation. Despite the faith differences... The spouse who isn't a Christian still says, no, I'm still committed to you. I still love you. I don't necessarily get it all, but I made a promise to stick it out with you through thick and thin. But there might be other instances where the spouse who isn't a Christian still is willing to stay in the marriage, but it's just not that easy for them. Now, they might be thinking, well, this is hard. We do have such different beliefs, but I suppose I am willing to give it a go. Now, there will be differences in enthusiasm in these situations, but where there is a willingness to stay in the marriage, God is saying, do not leave them. See, God does not want the believer in that moment to suddenly turn to their unbelieving spouse and say, well, actually, I'm not sure I can cope with this and these differences. I'm not sure I can still love you. I think maybe I want out. Believers are called to demonstrate Christ-like commitment to that marriage covenant. 
And you see, you've got to think, if, if Christ is committed to me with all my sin and complexity, I'm going to remain committed to my spouse, whatever complexity will come in that marriage. But what about that other big concern in the Corinthian church that an unbelieving husband or wife, many of whom were idol worshippers in Corinth, what about the fear that they might compromise the believer spiritually? Well, Paul's response to that fear is actually striking. Did you see it in your Bibles? He's, it's not that your unbelieving spouse brings you into the realm of spiritual darkness, says Paul. It's kind of like he's saying, you bring them into the realm of spiritual light and holiness. See, look at what he actually says in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Now, what does it mean that the unbelieving husband or wife is made holy? Well, it can't mean that they're saved simply by being married to a Christian. We know that because in verse 16, Paul is clear that the salvation of an unbelieving spouse is something that may or may not happen. So it can't be that. Holiness here, I think, represents the way an unbelieving spouse has been uniquely set apart by God in a way that other unbelievers have not been. See, unlike other pagans of Corinth, idol worshippers, who knew nothing of God or Christ, unlike um, other people in Corinth who would have been surrounded by spiritual darkness, these people, these spouses, were uniquely exposed to the light of the gospel through their believing spouse. They could hear from their spouse the good news that Christ died for them and rose again, that eternal life, forgiveness could be found in knowing Jesus. They could see and experience the transforming nature of the gospel in the newfound humility, love, and tenderness of their spouse. And the same is true for the children, says Paul, verse 14, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. See, kids like their unbelieving parents in that situation are also exposed to the gospel, and in fact, more so. In many cases, they were being raised, and they are being raised, by believing by their believing parents to see Jesus as the one who saves them. I think we actually see a picture of this in the New Testament with Timothy. In 2 Timothy, uh, his salvation can be traced back to his believing mother Eunice, which could be traced back to Eunice's believing mother Lois. Christians are not defiled by their unbelieving spouse. Instead, an unbelieving spouse is made holy uniquely set apart from the world to hear, see, experience the gospel of in their believing spouse. Uh, Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ, speaks about the way this kind of happened to him when he was an atheist and his wife just became a Christian. He says this, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, it was attractive. And it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, mainly to see if I could get her out of this cult that she'd gotten involved into. I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, 
but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. Uh, Lee Strobel was exposed to the gospel through his relationship, his marriage with his wife. She became an example of that kind of 1 Peter 3 verse, which says even if some husbands disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. And in God's kindness, Lee Strobel eventually did find salvation himself through faith in the Lord Jesus. I think it's important to realize at this point that situations where Christians are married to non-Christians will be greatly varied. In many cases, such marriages will still be very encouraging experiences, of course, filled with love and understanding. But in other cases, the faith differences will just be big, complex, and painful. But this passage reminds us that even in that complexity, God is still committed to those marriages. And if you're in that situation, you need to hear this. God doesn't desire for your marriage to end. He doesn't think it's less valuable than others. His spirit can help you. And in his sovereign mercy, a seemingly complex situation may become a context for your spouse to see, hear, and experience the gospel. So hear that encouragement. And for the rest of us, we should actually be giving the encouragement and praying for those things to happen, that God would be gracious in such circumstances. And most of us will know friends or family members who are believers who are married to people who don't know Christ. My question is, do we ever pray for them? Do we ever ask how it's going? Do we encourage them? Do we seek to get to know the spouse? I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like I don't do this enough and I need to change. If they are willing, says Paul, do not divorce. But the second thing Paul says to those who are married to unbelievers is if that person leaves you, you're not bound to the marriage. Now, divorce is not something Paul speaks of lightly here, and we know from his earlier words that his great desire, God's great desire, is for marriages to remain lifelong unions of love and commitment. But Paul recognises that there are circumstances that so terribly break the marriage covenant that in some cases it just may be irreparable. Jesus listed the case of sexual immorality in Matthew chapter 9, which we heard, Here, Paul speaks of the situation in which an unbelieving spouse just abandons the marriage and leaves. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. See, just again, think of the anxiety of a wife or a husband who goes, uh, that a wife and a husband goes through when uh, they are abandoned by their spouse. You know, will they ever return? Should I chase them down and somehow kind of force them back? Uh, what could I have done differently? Uh, what does all this mean now? Am I called to kind of float in some kind of married but unmarried limbo? Well, Paul is saying, no, actually. 
In such circumstances, God does not want his people to be living in anxiety confusion, and in confusion, but peace, he says. In such circumstances, you're not bound and you're free, you're free to divorce. And I think this chapter reminds us that the believer is also free to remarry. Verse 28 says that those who have been released from uh, their spouse have not sinned if they remarry. And when an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, God's word says they are free to let them go. They're not bound to the marriage. Now, Paul's final comments on this matter in verse 16 could be read in two distinct ways. And I tried hard to avoid having this discussion during the sermon, but I failed. So basically, the the verse can be translated either in a kind of optimistic way or a pessimistic way. So... For example, uh, the CSB has uh, this translation, wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Whereas the ESV, which some of you will have, translates this verse perhaps in a more pessimistic frame like this. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Both actually can be translated like that. If the former is a correct translation, it's kind of like Paul is circling back to his earlier encouragement in verse 14 for believers to stay in the marriage with willing unbelievers. And it's kind of like he's saying, don't divorce them, and also you never know what God might do. He might bring them to salvation through you. But if the latter is the correct translation, it's kind of like Paul is finishing his thought on the idea of letting an unbeliever go and the Christian living in peace. Uh, My own view, you can disagree, is that that ESV, the bottom one, is the more likely translation. As I think it fits more neatly into Paul's flow of reasoning up to this point. It's kind of like he's saying, don't make yourself anxious over what you cannot, can and cannot, sorry, don't make yourself anxious over what you cannot control in this moment of desperation and devastation. Don't think his or her salvation depends on you. Leave that to God. I think Paul is actually being pastorally sensitive to people who have been abandoned, who can't stop that process from happening, and are understandably worried for the salvation of their spouse, many of whom they will still love. A one Christian lady writing for the Gospel Coalition wrote of her feelings of guilt towards her husband who lost his faith and then left the marriage. She writes, If only I had better answers to his questions. If only I were more patient, less sinful, then maybe he would still believe. She then went on to describe how a friend had helped her to accept that she could not play the role of the Holy Spirit in her husband's life. The abandonment is awful. It leaves people feeling lost, devastated. And on top of that, there is often that anxiety for the spiritual well-being of the person who is leaving. And this is another reminder of our need as a church to care for people in such circumstances, to comfort them, to welcome them into our lives and our homes, to listen to them when they're actually sharing that grief, to love them 
And to keep pointing back them back to their saviour, we actually need to care for such people. And one of the things I've noticed about Paul as I've been studying 1 Corinthians 7 is his willingness to engage pastorally with these believers and to address real questions about life and relationships. And so on that note, I just want to kind of bring this sermon to a conclusion by addressing a couple of other questions about abandonment and divorce that sometimes come out of Paul's teaching here. So the first question is this, does abandonment automatically mean divorce? Uh, Not necessarily. Like sexual immorality in Matthew 19, divorce is permitted. It's not actually commanded. Uh, In the case of both sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever, some may actually choose not to divorce. And if that is the choice, we should pray for these people uh, and strongly advise them where possible to enlist the help of counsellors and pastors. The, The kind of difficulty with abandonment, though, is that the other party often does not wish to return to the marriage to engage with things, to work on things. But in any case, the decision to pursue divorce is not often easy to make. And sometimes there are complicating factors or or things people are unsure of. So it's actually good to seek counsel from another wise Christian on the matter or a pastor or several people. Proverbs 11 tells us that for lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. People need helpful advice in these kind of moments. And again, that might be an older, wiser Christian or someone who has walked that path themselves. Hebrews 13 verse 17 speaks of church leaders as people who are called to keep watch over Jesus' people. They too are good to speak with in that moment. But the other question that sometimes comes out of this is abuse a form of abandonment. Now, as with everything you hear, you should test what I say by the scriptures. I'm inclined to believe that in spousal abuse, it can actually, that spousal abuse can actually be a form of abandonment. See, if the actions of one spouse become so intolerable and abusive, uh, the other person may well be forced to leave or flee their home. And in such a case, it's not so much that the abusive spouse has left, but has forced the other person out, which in many ways does denote, I think, a form of abandonment. Um, I'm all with some of the Puritans on this one. William Perkins, uh, one of famous English Puritan, said this, for to depart from one and to drive one away by threat are equivalent. See, where there is no change on the part of the abusive spouse or where there is no repentance if the person is claiming to be a Christian, there actually may well be grounds for divorce. And let me say at this point that if you believe you are suffering any kind of abuse from your spouse, I'd advise you to speak with the proper authorities first up, the police or even an organisation like 1-800-RESPECT, and again, pastors, as pastors, we would also want to engage with you on that and to provide love and support for you in that moment. Uh, tonight we have 
thought about the unpleasant topic of divorce and how God wants us to think about it as Christians. And it is unpleasant, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, we all kind of want that happily ever after when it comes to marriage. Uh, But the good news amidst such a bad news subject is that for those who know Jesus, a better happily ever after actually is promised to you. Uh, In Revelation, Jesus is described as the great bridegroom who welcomes his people, his bride, into eternal joy with him forever. Jesus has saved us through his death and his resurrection, and he has committed himself to each one of us, no matter our experience, no matter the devastation that we've suffered in marriage, committed himself to us forever. And so for those of you who are feeling the pain of a divorce experience yourself, let me encourage you that the Lord Jesus will never leave you, He will never stop loving you. He will give you that fulfillment you actually, I suspect, long for. And he will give you that happily ever after that we all want. So let us all cling to the right marriage, not the ones on earth, but the one to come with Christ our Saviour. Let's come to him in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts tonight. Uh, Please help our marriages here at Bundy. May they be a true reflection of Jesus' love and commitment to us. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort those who are suffering through the pain of divorce or separation. Uh, Comfort those, we pray, Lord. Uh, Help them see the love uh, and the commitment and the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus to them. Help them to entrust all things into your sovereign hand, Lord. And Father, we do thank you that Jesus does promise us, his people, a better happily ever after, life forever, a saved people, in the joy of his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.